Hi folks, welcome to this week's edition of the Finance Hour. The topic of this week's show is should we be scared of the big bad bear? We've just had a period where we've had strong returns from all share markets and property investments as well. It has been, without a doubt, a strong bull market. But is now the time where we should become more cautious? We have a great discussion with Tim Farrelly, who gives us two scenarios where markets fall. And one of those scenarios, you can have some success in predicting. We also have a chat with Sean Herman, a mortgage broker, who talks about the bank's attitude to the property market and what that means for borrowers. And don't forget to listen all the way to the end for the Propellerhead of the Week, where I discuss ways to save on your insurance premiums. If you're enjoying the show, please go to our iTunes account and leave us a review. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on Jair or indeed on our podcast, this is the show where we try and make sense of the world of business and finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name's Ruben Zell. I'm a financial planner and owner at Adapt Wealth Management. We're a boutique financial planning firm that works with business owners, professionals, and those planning for retirement. Now, before we get going, just a quick word from our lawyers. Everything we discuss today on the show is not personal financial advice. Uh, we're just having a general discussion uh, I, Adapt Wealth, or JA, don't take any responsibility for you acting on anything discussed. And before you do take action, you should consider the relevance for your particular circumstances and where appropriate, seek advice, be it financial, investment, tax, or legal. So, uh, this show today is called Are You Scared of the Big Bad Bear? I welcome you to look at all the previous episodes on iTunes. But today, what we are talking about is share markets and property markets. Everything has done really well the last year or the last few years. And are we on the cusp of a bear market? So for those of you that don't know the terminology, a bull market is when the market is going up and up and up. It's charging like a bull, maybe like a wounded bull. Uh, And a bear market is the opposite. That's when everyone gets scared and starts running away. So I think it uh, it's certainly worthwhile discussing it, uh, given that we've had such great returns. I'm not going to preempt the answers, but we're going to have a good discussion with a couple of people. Uh, first of all, we're going to have uh, someone who's been a guest on this show a number of times. His name's Tim Farrelly. He's a principal at uh, Farrelly's Investment Strategy, funnily enough. Uh, they give guidance to uh, financial planners on, on investments for clients, particularly around how much to allocate to different asset classes, how much to put in shares, property, cash, fixed interest. And he will be a very, very good person to give us some insight. Uh, he doesn't like to be asked about what's going to happen in the next few months. We might ask him that anyway and see what he says, but I know he doesn't like those questions, but he certainly does form a strong view on whether markets are generally overpriced or cheap. So 
Uh, the other guest that we're going to have on is Sherm, Sean Herman from Professional Partners. He's a mortgage broker. And we're going to get the perspective from him about the property market uh, and the significant increases and particularly how the banks are responding to that. Are the banks themselves, in fact, concerned about the rapid price increases in the property market? So it should be a good show. As I said, uh, if you want to get any other backlogs of shows, they're all available on the podcast, search The Finance Hour. They're also available on my website of my business, adaptwealth.com.au. We're just going to have a brief musical interlude, and then I will get Tim Farrelly on the phone. Welcome back to The Finance Hour. There was just a message I heard which said that today's show is not appearing. That is actually incorrect. I'm definitely here alive and well. And the topic of today is, are you scared of the big bad bear? So as I mentioned before the break, we've got Tim Farrelly on the line. Tim Farrelly is a principal at Farrelly's Investment Strategy. That's a, uh, a business that gives guidance to financial planners on investments for clients. And in particular, the specialty is around asset allocation, which is deciding how much to put into the different asset classes, how much to put in shares, property, cash, fixed interest, and that all depends on how markets are valued and what risks there are. Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Ruben. Good to have you on again. It's been a little while. Happy New Year. Thank you. Yes, same to you. Yeah, it's February 1st, isn't it? So actually, I don't think you can say Happy New Year once January's finished. <laughs> but anyway, happy February. Tim, uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, the topic of the show is Are You Scared of the Big Bad Bear? Uh, we've had some pretty outstanding returns from all different sorts of investment markets over the last year and even the last couple of years. Share markets have had a very good run. Uh, the Australian share market's done well, but in particular, the overseas markets. The U.S. share market's done well. Emerging markets like China, Korea, Taiwan and India have done well. Commercial properties done well. Residential properties done well. It's all good news. But my question to you now, we've had a real bull market. Should we now be scared of the big bad bear? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, Firstly, in some respects, we should always be wary that there's a bear market around the corner. Yep. Typically, bear markets uh, come from two reasons. One, when markets get pushed to extreme evaluations and then some sort of trigger occurs and people sell off and markets come down to a much more fair sort of price. At yep. other times, it's just a, a surprise, something that no one's expecting. It turns out way worse than people think, often associated with the recession, and that's what causes the bear market. Is that what Donald Rumsfeld referred to as the unknown unknowns? They're the unknowns. That's exactly it. It is the unknown unknowns. It's, it's the things that we don't know about that happen that really cause the problems. So just... But, yeah, so just into that... Yeah, sorry. Uh, continue, please. Yeah. By definition, the unknown unknowns are always there. or or we can't know what they are and so we should also always be concerned there's always the possibility that a market could sell off 10, 15, 20, 25 percent at at any time and that's even even if they're reasonable value even if they're not 
significantly overpriced, that can still happen. Absolutely right. And so one of the aspects of that is to say we should always be prepared for a downturn of the order of 10, 15, 20, even 25%. Yeah. And if we can't accept that, then you really want to seriously think about whether you want to be in the equity market. Mm. But that's full-time. That's all the time. And the cost of being out of the equity market, certainly as we've seen in the last two, five, even seven or eight years, are very high. Yeah. Yeah, uh, sure, so, if you, know, you get out too rates, early. Yeah. With cash rates at one, one and a half percent, mm. equity markets don't have to do very much before you're a whole lot better off in shares, notwithstanding the volatility. Right. Right. So, so that, that's the first thing I'd like to say is mm. that, you know, at any point in time, we could be a, a, a bear market. Whether you should be worried about that or not, I think the main thing is you don't necessarily want to act on that. You just want to make sure that your overall exposed equity is at a level that you are comfortable with that kind of downturn, even though you're obviously not going to enjoy it. Yep. Yep. So that can happen in any condition. But the, the, I guess the next point is the, the, the second one that you raised about when markets get really overheated. And in that situation, is a, a bear market or massive falls actually inevitable? It's, I think it's absolutely inevitable, but what we know very little about is the timing of that. Mm. Sometimes when markets go to ex- extremes, they stay at those levels or even higher for two, three, four, even five years. Mm. And the longer they go there, the more the damage is on the other side. So the extreme example of that is the Japanese share market, which I think was sort of overvalued in about 1984 and kept on going up for another six years. Mm. And the other side of that, it fell 85% and took 20 years to do it. So uh, on the way down, it actually took 20 years to fall by that much. Years. Wow. 20 years of falling. So it's not just so, a matter of, you know, you have a fall, then you go back up again. It's, you can have long, long, long periods of, of, of really bad performance. The extreme overvaluation, that's mm. the outcome of it. And so they're the ones we really want to avoid at all costs. The other ones, when it tends to be a bunch of bad news, things that were, they're the ones that tend to bounce back in two or three years. And yes, it's uncomfortable, but if for those who hold through those, it's not particularly financially damaging. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Tim, so given that's the case, so that's the two sort of situations where, you know, markets can fall a lot. I want to talk a little bit, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, we've had such strong returns yes. right such strong returns over the last while are we now susceptible to that uh to the second one that you referred to of markets being overpriced and 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 likely to have an inevitable fall are we at risk of that type of overvaluation at the moment generally no but there is one market in the world where i think we are getting close to that level and that's the united states stock market right to right. me, that one appears much more expensive than most other markets around the world. There is a wave of good news coming through. There's the Trump deregulation, and I think the impact that is going to have and has had on earnings hasn't really been fully appreciated yet. Are and you I mean, talking about the company, company tax cuts? No, no. This is just deregulation, where they're basically clear. You know, If you're in the oil exploration business, you don't have to worry about the environment anymore. Well, that's mm. probably an exaggeration, right, but right. certainly peeling that back. So a whole range of costs, some of which are, I suspect, 
cost that the company should bear, uh, and others are just unnecessary bureaucracy. But a whole lot of that has been wound back. So is this all a, all a result of of, uh, of Trump appealing to the average sort of worker? Is that was that the fulfilment of his political well, promise? He, he, he certainly appeals to the average worker, but I think he he responds to the average company <laughs> owner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the theory is is that might flow through to employment. I get that's the theory that's of the all theory. this stuff, isn't it? That's the theory. Whether we will see. Yeah. We will see. yeah whether. Wow, that's over enormous. A year or two. That's quite a big increase. It certainly is. Over uh, one year, over one year, it'll increase it. Over the two years, they flow that through. Wow. So even if these companies don't really increase their profits, purely as a result of the tax cuts, their profits are going to go up. By about eight percent. Wow. Now, I didn't realise it was that 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 massive. Having said that, the US share market's gone up by more than that in the last twelve months. So right. Is that it is, factor, the markets yeah. can see this coming, it's factoring it in. Even if you put that into your calculation, I still find the US market expensive. And my mm. definition of expensive is I think the returns over the next 10 years will be about the same or slightly lower than you'll get out of term deposits. Right. But once again, you don't know what the order of those returns. It might be negative 20 in the first year and then zero for the next... I don't know, 10 years, or it might be a slow fall. It could be plus 50% next year Mm. and then minus 20 for the Mm. next three years. Mm. The pattern is very hard to work out. Yeah. Um, But certainly we're in a stage now where there's a lot of euphoria around the US market. If I had US market exposure, I would be taking that off the table Mm. and taking advantage of these high prices. If I didn't have US exposure, I certainly wouldn't be thinking of adding it at this stage. It's interesting, that, isn't it? As you say, you don't know exactly how the falls are going to occur, you know, whether it's a prolonged sort of painful fall or a big one-off. It's funny, I would have thought from a sentiment point of view, people would find it easier for a big drop and then a recovery. I think, you know, if it's sucking the life out of people for 10 years, to me that seems to be a much harder harder thing oh. for investors to bear. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. It's horrendous. Yeah. Um, the, the classic example is you go back, again, the late 80s, when the Japanese market was booming. You know, the US share market, the Australian share market in 1987 mm. uh, fell very substantially. The Aussie market, over the course of about a month, was down 50%, yeah. and then gradually recovered. Yeah. The US market, similarly, recovery is more quick there. Uh and as painful as that 1987 experience was, yeah. when you look at it over the decades, it was a whole lot more attractive than what the poor old Japanese investors have had well, to go through well, in the 20s. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you know, if you have well, 10 to 20 years of negative returns, people will literally lose faith in the share market as being Absolutely. a place to invest. They'll just lose complete faith in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and mm. you see that in Japan. And now the Japanese share market has actually started to come back and do very well. Mm. Uh, I'm, I haven't seen the stats, but I'm pretty sure the participation for local investors is not that strong. Yeah. So that's the US share market. What about um, places like the emerging markets like China, Korea, Taiwan, India? Have they, Those markets have performed very well as well, haven't they? 
they perform very well. I think they're not quite as stressed as the US market, but mm. approaching that. Yeah. Um, traditionally, they trade a little bit cheaper than Australia, than sorry, the US market and other markets, but they're really up there now as well. Mm. They've had such a good run. So mm. a little nervous around those, not as nervous about the US. But then you come the full circle back to uh, Australia and the Australian market is still reasonably priced. Yeah. Now we've got a dividend yield of around 5.5% mm. with cash rates at 1.5%. Uh, you know, our market could fall by 6% this year and we're still breaking even with cash. Mm, yeah. It, it, our market is reasonably priced, and if we are prepared to look through the ups and downs, and there will be ups and downs, I'm pretty confident over the next five to ten years, an investor in Australian shares is going to do dramatically better than they are going to do out of cash and term deposits. So right. I have those marked down as reasonably priced or fair valued, and you know I, I think here we should be fully invested. We should recognise that, you know, if the US market were to fall 20 or 30%, our market would probably go with it. Mm. But I think our market will recover much more quickly. Yeah. But there's also a caveat that when we say fully invested, it's fully invested as per your risk profile. If I'm a conservative person, it doesn't mean I have 100% in. It means I still have my my 50-50 in, if that was my standard. Uh, It's certainly not suggesting that everyone has 100% of their money in the market, is it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And mm. and really, that comes out of this uh, idea that the market could fall by 25 30% at any time. Mm. And if you, as a retiree, for example, were uncomfortable with the idea that all of a sudden, over the course of the year, you'd be worth 30% less than you were at the start of the year, which is right. quite reasonable, you might say, look, I'm not prepared to put that much at risk. Mm. I might only want to be putting in half of the risk. Right. And right. that might be a new... But then... If, if your basic position is I want to be roughly 50% invested in the market, I think right now you should be 50% invested in the market. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, uh, yeah, uh, so that's, that's the share markets. What about the property markets as well? I mean, once again, you know, I mean, residential property keeps going. I mean, there, there's signs that it might have come back a little bit recently. Certainly uh, commercial office properties has been going up and up. What sort of risks are we facing in those markets? I think the two markets you mentioned are quite different. The residential property market and the commercial property market, to me, seem to be fundamentally different markets driven by fundamentally different things, and so we can separate them. In terms of the residential market... I think from here on in, growth in residential property prices are going to be pretty modest. Yeah. My belief is the biggest driver of residential property prices are bank lending practices. Mm, By that, mm. what I mean is when you turn up to the bank and let's say you're earning $100,000 a year, how much will the bank give you as a loan? That's really interesting. We're actually getting a, a mortgage broker on the on the call just after you, and oh, I'm going to be right. posing that exact same question to them because I think things have changed there significantly. That's right, and the question you might put to them is: <clears throat> seven or eight years ago, if I turned up with a hundred thousand dollars, what would they have given me? Mm. Two years ago, what they give me, and now what would they give me? And I suspect you'd find between seven years ago and two years ago, it's probably almost twice as much they'll give you. 
Wow. With the same yep. earnings. The result of that is if everybody in the market can turn up with twice the length of the borrowing power, guess what happens to prices? Yeah, they go they up. Double. Mm. And if that amount that the banks will give is starting to flatten out, which I think it is happening, then I think you'll see that flattening as well. So from here on in, I suspect the big driver of residential property prices will continue to be bank lending prices, but what will drive that is uh, personal earnings. Right. Personal earnings, employment, obviously, as well. Um, And what we're hearing is that wage growth is very low at the moment, aren't we? And I think that's what we're going to see from here on in. Mm. I think we're going to see uh, housing prices, I suspect, ease 5 10% or something like that over the next couple of years. And then after that, start going up at a couple percent a year. So I'm digressing a little bit. But one of the, the things that I always find interesting is they talk about wage growth, right? And with, they're yeah. saying people's you know, wages are not increasing that much, and that's not good for yeah. the economy. But on the other yeah. hand, it is good for companies, and I imagine it is good for full employment because companies can employ more people. So I'm never quite sure. It seems like if wage growth, wages are growing too high, it's bad because that pushes up costs of everything. But if wages are growing too low, that's also bad. I, we just seem to get mixed messages on that. It's a bit of a chicken and egg. If wage growth is too low, then consumption, which is about 60% of the economy, will also be low. And so everyone, all the businesses who rely on consumption will experience very low growth. Mm. All the retailers and... The retailers. Yeah. You know, people who use food. Yeah, yeah. A large part of the economy. So that is... The smashed avocado economy. That's right. What is really bad, what is really bad for employers and companies, in fact, is when wages growth is higher than inflation mm. and productivity growth. So, if productivity growth is going at two percent, in other words, every worker is doing two percent more work in the same amount of time, then it's okay to pay them two percent because right. that's not going to be pushing up their price, their cost. Uh, so if you've got a strong productivity growth and then strong wages growth, that's the sweet spot for employees mm, because mm. they're getting good growth in the economy and their, their, their cost of producing goods and services are not going up. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that was just a little digression, but now let's, you, you mentioned that commercial property is yes. fundamentally very different to residential. What's your, yes. what's your views on where we are there? Uh, the big issue on commercial property, and, and again, we'll split these out a little bit, there's the office sector and the retail sector. Yeah. The office sector is incredibly strong. Mm. I saw recently a Jones Lang LaSalle report of rental growth, office rent growth in 300 cities around the world. Number one in the world was Sydney. Number two in the world was Melbourne last year. Is that rental growth? Rental growth in office property. In wow. Sydney, it was around 30%. Melbourne was around 20%. Wow. So there's a shortage of good office space. Mm. That's really pushing through. And the expectation is that there's a couple more years... Well, sorry. There's a couple more years of reasonable growth. Nothing like that again. No. But there's been that big pickup and not too much that will be given back. Yeah. So yep. that's a real positive for the office sector. In retail, it's a much more mixed situation. There's huge fears around 
what will Amazon and the like do to mm. uh, the shopping centres? Shopping centres. Frank, I, I think it's way overblown. Mm. Uh, you know, I think Amazon's been around the States now for about 25 years. They've got a 10% market share. Mm. Well, our biggest shopping centre owner actually just jumped, well, Lowy, it sounds like they jumped out, but they've, they've still got a big holding, I guess, in that in the company that took them over, don't they? Yeah. And it'd be interesting to know what the actual drivers behind that were. Maybe mm. they thought the prices were too high for what they were. Yeah. Maybe they just want to do something else. I, I'm not yeah. Sure. Yeah. But my, my guess is the people running, particularly the large shopping centres, will just reinvent what they are. Mm. A whole bunch of retailers are there now won't afford to stay and will move on and they'll replace them with something else. But people still love going to shopping centres though, don't they? It's a Absolutely. Real, you know, whether they're hanging out the food courts or whatever, it, it's one of those real cultural things we have here. I don't know if it's, a, if it's a case all around the world, but I'm constantly amazed at how full they are. And, and it's not just the old folks like me. Mm. You go there and it's full of kids. Yeah. So, Having Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> they're going to adapt, whether the growth that they experience in rent will be really high or not, I don't know. Typically, it only runs it around inflation anyway. So I, I, I think in those types of investments, they will do reasonably well. They're certainly not going to be stellar. But I would say, you know, in addition to your yield, you'll pick up a couple of percent growth, and they'll produce returns of 6 or 7%, which sounds modest in some respects, but you've got to keep coming back to say, well, what's your alternative? Yeah. And if the alternative is cash and term deposits, well, give me 6 or 7% any day. Okay, well, go, just touching on that then. So let's say, you know, I'm an investor. I've come to the decision that I want to take a bit of profits off the table. Maybe it's my risk profile that's changed. I just, I don't, I, I want to take some profits because the markets have been so good. Then we look at our alternatives. And, and, and if we, if we ta- assuming we're taking money out of the markets, we want to go safe, you know, what are our options? Well, you know, to me, I mean, the, the only real option for real security is actually term deposits, isn't it? I mean, we can. There are other sorts of fixed interest investments, but if you want real, real security, that's where you have to go, is it not? It depends a little bit. Yeah. Um, if I was taking money out of what we normally think of as risky assets, equities, and so on, I think you can do a lot worse than going to the bank hybrid. Yeah. And I'm thinking of the big four banks only here. Um, they're still paying yields if you if you buy a security with four or five years to go of around about five percent. Yeah, quite, quite a bit better than term deposits. They will have some volatility, but if you're taking money out of equities, the volatility shouldn't bug you because mm. it's going to be a lot less than the equity volatility. Yeah, probably about a quarter of the same volatility. If the, if the share market sells off twenty percent, these will probably sell off five. Yeah. So, and in addition, if you buy them today, you'd be really confident in five years' time that they're going to be repaid in full. Mm. So this is not like share market volatility when the prices go down 20. You don't really know what's going to happen next. With these things, when the price goes down by five, you know it's going to go back to where you, there's the $1 price or $100 price that was issued at. Yeah. Um, I, I might just take that, that point just to give a reminder to investors that nothing that we're saying here is personal advice. It's general only. If you're yeah. going to go act on what Tim said, go and get some real financial advice. Don't just listen to yeah. Tim. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it's absolutely true. It'll be different for everybody. It's absolutely got to be tailored to your own needs. 
Yeah, but you're saying, but that's obviously an option. But if you want the real, the real secure stuff, I mean, you always benchmark it against the term deposits, don't you? That's term deposits are government guaranteed. Yeah, and they are absolutely one hundred percent rock solid. And the lovely thing is, the, the only real competitor that is government bonds, mm. which are also government guaranteed, but they pay a lower rate. So why not yeah. buy the term deposits? Okay, well, thanks very much, Tim. It seems to me. Um, that it's still a challenge for investors because, as you've said, uh, well, some markets are, are fully priced, potentially overpriced. On the other hand, you've got low-term deposit rates. Um, so so it, it is a bit of a dilemma for clients, really, isn't it? Because as much as you can say, well, lower deposit rates mean that you should be invested, on the other hand, you know, if you feel like your risk profile has changed... Uh, or you you want to take some profits, you know, your options are, are more limited. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a time to absolutely keep a focus on the long term. Yeah. Which is to say, i got to think about what sort of returns might I get over five years and what will they look like compared to term deposits. And I think that's the thought process to keep going over in your mind and try and put out of your mind the idea that there could be a downturn, I've got to avoid it. Yeah. It's what the thing we really must avoid is assets that look vastly overpriced. Yeah. And as I said, there's a, there's a couple out there that are approaching that, um, but otherwise it's a matter of sticking to it. All right, then, Tim, thank you very much for your time again. It's uh, good to have you back on the show, and I uh, hope to have you uh, certainly again uh, in the future. Thanks for your time. Thanks, David. Pleasure. Welcome back to the Finance Hour, whether you're listening live on Jair or on our podcast. Topic of this week's show is, Are You Scared of the Big Bad Bear? We've had a great discussion with Tim Farrelly on investment markets, share markets in particular, how they've been going, what the future looks like. Uh, We also touched on the property market. And to further that discussion, I have on the phone Sean Herman, uh, who is a Director of Professional Partners, which are mortgage brokers uh, specifically for professionals. Okay, Sean, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good. How are you going, Ruben? Good, good. Thanks for being on the show. Sorry, I think you're. I'm hearing a bit of feedback and some breathing into the phone. Can you just be a little careful on that? Hello? Yes. Sorry, I was just hearing some feedback there. Okay, no, it's fine. Um, now, Sean... We've just been talking about, uh, you know, in markets and how they've been going up in sort of all markets, mm-hmm. share and property markets. Yep. And now we're talking about the big bad bear. So our, is there concern about uh, markets falling in value? And in particular, I'm interested in your feedback because obviously you deal with the banks day in and day out. I'm very much interested in your feedback as to what's changed with the bank's lending uh, policies and are they, in fact, scared? Yep, sure. So, um, without a doubt, the banks have become a lot more conservative with lending money. Yeah. Um, they're asking a lot more questions. Things are going backwards and forwards far, far more. Um, there was actually just an article yesterday in one of our broker publications saying that about one in three applications are currently being declined. Wow. Is that through mortgage brokers or, or through? Well, it's, I, think it's, I think it's the industry. I don't believe it's mortgage brokers specifically. I think it was across the industry. Wow. Um, which is which is quite significant compared to a few years ago that wasn't the case. So um, yeah. there's obviously a general tightening up of credit, which in turn um, 
is causing um, issues for consumers that want to buy properties and want to take out loans. And there's definitely a disconnect between what the banks are willing to lend and what people's appetite for borrowing exists. That's really interesting. And, and what do you think is the driver of that? Are they scared that the property market is too high and they're going to lose money if they need to sell um, people out? Or what's the big driver? I don't know. I don't know. If that, look, I think that's a concern. What we've seen is at your higher property purchase prices, mm. the banks are reducing LVR, loan to value ratios, what they'll lend against properties. So just to, um, can you so explain for our listeners the loan-to-value ratio ratio, what that okay, means? So the loan-to-value ratio is effectively the loan that you want to take out against the value of a property. So as an example, if you want to borrow $80,000 and the property is worth $100,000, that then represents 80% loan-to-value ratio. Um, if you go up to $90,000 or $95,000 against that same $100,000 property, then you take out mortgage insurance because... Right you're now at the 90, 95% mark. So what's happening is for the million-dollar property, um, the banks are happy to borrow, lend $900,000, $800,000, whatever yeah. you. Yeah. Um, when you move up the scale and you're looking at your two-and-a-half, three-million-dollar property, mm. they, they're reducing the loans they're willing to give out against those properties quite significantly. Um, but to answer your previous question as to, with reference to the banks and what's driving it, I think it's, Pressure from regulators, pressure from um, APRA yeah. with reference to their lending guidelines. So as a result, the banks have tightened up their lending guidelines, which, as a result, which in turn means people can borrow less money. Um, I'm not sure if they're concerned around actually losing money because they've got enough equity and security, mm. um, but certainly possibly rates were to go up and people's ability to repay the loan would definitely be a factor. That's interesting because uh, our guest on before, Tim, we were talking about the residential market. He says that the the biggest driver he thinks of, of property prices is the bank's lending policies, right? And, and, what, and the question that he asked me, that he suggested I pose to you is, if I came in, I'm earning $100,000, if I came in seven years ago, what would the bank lend me? I'm not asking for exact figures, yeah, but I want yeah, a general yeah. picture. If I came in three years ago, what would they lend me? And if I came sure. in yesterday, what would they lend me? How much okay, does that so, change? So to answer, to answer your question, um, on, a, on a normal, let's just take an owner-occupied home, though, because that's the most vanilla purchase, most vanilla product. Yeah. On an owner-occupied home loan, I would suggest that seven years ago, for a specific income of $100,000, the bank would probably lend you not too dissimilar to what they'll lend you today. Yeah. So okay. when the banks were assessing loans seven years ago, they were using a assumed interest rate of about 7.5%. Ah, I see. Um, today, yeah. they're still using 7.5% interest rates. Mm. What's changed is that actual interest rates are a lot lower. Mm. So as a result, people's appetite for debt have, have increased quite significantly. Um, seven years ago, if we had a client to take in out a six, $700,000 loan, that was considered a big loan, and the client would set their own budget based on their comfort level and repayments. What's happening now is the clients are still looking at the level of repayments, except for the same repayment per month, they can now get a $1.4 million loan or $1.3 million loan because rates have dropped significantly in the last five years. So you're so, saying that the, so the banks not, are not, not restricting bank, that? What's that? Are you saying that the banks, what, for the given amount of income, the banks haven't reduced what they're willing to lend? No, I would, I would say 
the banks are willing to lend the exact same amount. Oh, what right. happened is seven years ago, um, what people could borrow from the bank was significantly more than what they were comfortable taking out. Right, based Today, on their comfort. Yeah. Based on their comfort level. Today, with interest rates going down, people are borrowing a lot more and they're closer towards the limits or even beyond. So people want to actually borrow more than the banks will give them and that's where the banks will say no. So what's happened is, is that um, just, to, just to give you actual numbers is maybe the easiest way of, of demonstrating this. Um, today, uh, if you take out an $800,000 loan today, um, and you've got a home loan rate of, say, 3.6%, you'd be paying about $3,600 a month in, intro, in repayments, principal yep. interest on yep. that loan. If we go back when interest rates were 7%, let's say, or 6.5%, which was five years ago, mm. um, so it's 6.5%, for that same loan, you'd be paying about 5100 a month. Mm. So if you go back five, six years ago, you'd be paying an extra $1,500 a month in repayments compared to today. Yeah, yeah. So what that means is that fifth, Five years ago, people had to be on a much higher income to be willing to take out that $800,000 loan. Um, today, people on the lower income when to take out the loan. From the bank side, they're assessing it the exact same way. So they're saying, we're assuming rates are 7.5% or 8%, and that's the rate we're going to use in assessing the deal. And um, that doesn't change whether actual rates 35 or 5 or 6%. That doesn't impact what the banks use for their assessments. So I think it's a bit of a fallacy that, that banks are the ones that are driving it. I think it's consumers that are driving it, and that's in turn resulting in the property market going up because all of a sudden people have access to a lot more cash and are willing to mm. borrow a lot more than what they were willing to borrow five or seven years ago. It's interesting, though, because if you say that one in three borrowers are being knocked back, yes. I mean, that would suggest to me that it's the banks that are making that decision, not the individual. Yeah, but the individual's willing to borrow much more. So if I go back many years ago, say um, 13 years ago, 12 years ago, I remember a friend of mine bought a property in, in, in um, Caulfield and paid whatever, took out a half a million dollar loan at the time. And um, people thought that was crazy to take out a half a million dollar loan. Today, someone buying a property in Caulfield, um, half a million dollar loan would be insignificant. Mm. And, and, and all that's changed is rates have gone down as a result, people want to borrow more money. Well, people can. People need to borrow more money to buy that same property. Mm. And and we notice that the banks are increasing rates on some investment loans. Yes, um, correct. Are they increasing rates on own occupied residential as well? Or no, is it, those no. are going those are going down. So your your own occupied residential at the moment you can get a rate of like. 3.59% for an owner-occupied residential, mm. which I would say is the lowest I've ever seen in 13 years of doing of being business. Mm. So over the last 13 years, I've never seen home loan rates at 3.59, um, which is pretty much you can get, most people can get that nowadays. So um, so there's a, been a huge decrease in rates, which has translated to people's um, ability to make repayments. And what about um, investment property loans? No, those have gone up. So, yeah. so if you're looking at a interest-only investment property loan, that's closer on the, say, 4.5% mark. Yeah. 
Yeah, but if it's so, there's a massive disconnect between the two. Mm. Even though the security can essentially be the same, yeah, it's, a, it's a residential the security property. Security is the same. Mm. Absolutely, security is the same, but that's driven by various um, uh, benchmarks and various um, percentages that the banks mm. have to manage from that's been imposed by APRA. So there's certain percentage that can only be of the book that can be for investment, that can be interest only. Mm. And consequently, they're pricing it to call up to manage that um, that level of business. So traditionally, tra- traditionally, when people do investment loans, they do interest only. But now you're saying that's a higher rate. Are you seeing yep. people taking investment loans on a principal and interest basis to get? Yeah, most. I would say, I would say, majority. I would say, gain forward, or certainly since the changes took place last year, um, a lot majority of people that can afford the differential in principal and interest versus interest only because obviously on principal and interest your actual repayments are higher so yeah. people that can afford the additional cash flow are opting for a principal and interest investment loan because um, they're saving the loan interest so they can put in an extra few hundred dollars a month and pay mm. for a few thousand dollars in capital and guess what you may actually pay off the loan as well <laughs> yeah which is what's driving and that's and that's sort of Right, and that's what they want. That's what APRA wants to happen. They actually want people to um, create equity, pay down the loans, and, and that's what's driving everything. So, it's not a. I don't think it's a bad outcome, um, encouraging people to pay down their loans. I think that's very responsible and, mm. and, a, and a good, a good situation. All right, so we're coming towards the end. But from what you're telling me now, obviously, with one in three uh, borrowers being knocked back, uh, it's probably more and more important for borrowers to be prepared when they're applying for a loan. Can you, so can you yes, just correct. give me three quick tips for borrowers to be prepared with when they go to apply for a loan? Yep, okay. So, um, good question. The first one is, is not so much when they're um, applying for a loan, but rather when they actually start the process. I think it's important and critical that borrowers have a budget in mind as to what they feel comfortable on the repayment side. And also, if interest rates do go up, what pressure will that put them on? And they need to set a budget, work backwards to set their purchase price based on their comfort level right now. Yeah. Um, and an easy way of doing it is saying, okay, I'm currently paying $3,000, $4,000 a month in rent. I'm able to save another one or $2,000 on top of that. And therefore, the maximum my repayment should be would be around the, what is it, five or $6,000 as an absolute maximum, as, a, as an example. Um, and then from that, you can then work backwards to work out what's in suitable purchase price and comfort level and to sensitivity around interest rates and how things affect the repayments, et cetera. So that's the first thing is, is just actually know where you where you sit. All too often, we have clients coming in and saying to us, I don't know what my budget should be, you tell me. And you can't, I can't really, I don't know anyone's personal situation. It's very hard for us to tell them what their comfort level is. It's just more for them to just do some basic analysis beforehand um the second thing is coming back to your point because of the one you three decline and things have become a lot more complicated i think it's critical um to actually speak to a, a professional broker that knows what they're doing that's got the experience um as opposed to running around to try and do it yourself and get knocked back i think yeah. it's important to actually um have someone do it properly with a high confidence that you'll get it approved as opposed to just hit and miss and hope for the best um so that's um, that's certainly which is which is critical. No one wants to be declined or rejected. It's not. It's a waste of time. It's not good for your 
morale and self-esteem and certainly just not a good outcome. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing when it comes to actual borrowings and loans, um, the one biggest factor that people can easily change that influences their loans are their level of, um, it's called consumer or personal debt. So stuff like credit card limits, mm. personal loans, car loans, all of that sort of stuff um, it has a very, very negative impact on your application. And doing something small like reducing the credit card limit or paying out a personal loan could have a big impact on your overall ability to get the loan approved. Interesting. So that car loan that you might have taken out, that lease that might be costing you $1,500 a month, might yeah, have a yeah, real yeah. impact on your borrowing capacity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It will, it will have a real impact because the way the banks work is even if you've got 12 months left to run on that car lease, they assume that that car lease is a commitment for the next 30 years and they take it $1,500 a month as a commitment, whereas you might only owe fifteen dollars or $20,000 left on that car lease. Um, if you were to pay that and close it, it could easily increase your borrowing capacity by a couple of thousand dollars, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Okay, Sean, thank you very much for your time. We're grateful to have you on the show again and uh, we will uh, catch up with you next time. No problem, Ruben. Thanks a lot. Speak Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. It is now time for my Propeller Head of the Week. And the Propeller Head of the Week this week is about paying insurance premiums. Whether it's your health, car, life insurance, you often have the option of paying it monthly, half-yearly, annually. And it's really important to have a look at what the discounts are for paying it in different intervals. For example, a one life insurance company I was just looking at for a client gives an 8% discount for paying it uh, annually in advance. And that's much better than what you'd get by putting it into your mortgage. So that might really be worthwhile. The problem obviously is from a cash flow point of view, but if you investigate, you might find out that they give you the same discount for six monthly payments, or the discount might only reduce by a couple of percent. So it's really worthwhile looking at and seeing if from a cash flow point of view, you can afford it. Uh, Taking the discount might save you as much as one month's premiums. As I said, it's obviously a catch-22 because you've got to uh, be able to fund it, but definitely worth investigating next time your insurance comes up for renewal ask your advisor broker or call the insurer directly and ask them what the difference in uh, discounts will be if you pay your premiums in different intervals okay well that's all we have uh for the show today uh, i encourage you to uh check out previous episodes on my uh on my page adaptwealth.com.au or look us up on itunes is actually the easiest way in any event uh check us out there if you can leave us a review on itunes that would be much appreciated and we will catch up with you again next week